Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Jesse Isinger. Jesse, how are you doing? Hey, good. Good to be with you, Josh. Good to have you here. So I'm going to read your bio off your page so that people know, and then I'll say how we know each other because it's been such a long time. Okay. Read it in a stentorian voice. In a what voice? Declaim it ah. from the, the rooftops. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Jesse is a senior reporter for ProPublica. And he's covered the financial world since 1992, reporting on corporate scandals in Latin America, Europe, and the U.S., awarded a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. This is really cool to hear. In 2011, yeah, I'm sure it's even more cool to have happened. After co-writing a series of, of stories on Wall Street corruption, he's been named a New American Fellow for 2016 and 2017. He's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic, Washington Post, Baffler, Connie Nast, uh, Portfolio, and you were the Wall Street editor. NPR, This American Life, has also featured his work. And this is like well-known. I mean, everyone I talk to knows, especially about your more recent stuff. So your first book, The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives, that's actually what re-got me into your work, reading that book. And before I read it, I remember reading stories where it would say like the Justice Department, someone got like some big hundred million, billion dollar settlement. And I think, great, they really did a good job. And then I read it and I realized, oh, this is not, there weren't criminal convictions. And there's a whole system that's been changing that the more I hear about it, the more I'm like, I'm glad to hear about stuff like this and how much more is going on. But before we start talking, I'm also going to say about how you and I met each other because you and I met in its undergrads in college, which would be the late eighties. And we were teammates. (laughs) We're admitting this, huh? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. We just calculated before I hit record that it was two-thirds of our lives. I, the positive way, we've known each other for two-thirds of our lives. <laughs> and also there's a, I mean, we were teammates. We, were, we, we went to nationals together Yeah, and we were handlers. So we, we had like a lot of, not just on the same team, like a, a quarterback and a, and a defensive back can be on the same team and they'll play together. We, there's a lot of close playing together. And there's stories that come to mind, but I will get, I'll have to do that for another time when you, it's just you and me. Yeah, I barely can remember it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you claim to remember uh, Ultimate Frisbee in the late 80s, you weren't there. The old <laughs> yeah. And then recently you, you did these stories about, uh, which I think you're, we're still, it's still go ongoing of these. I think most people would say you found the tax, people gave you the tax returns of very rich people. And I think most people think of it's about the rich people, but I think it's, I think it's more about the system because the, these people weren't breaking the law. Yeah. In between those appeals surprise of the 08 crisis, I guess that was before. What's it like being an investigative journalist? How did you, I, I'm not sure where to begin, but that, I feel like that's a big part of your identity. Yeah, it is uh, a big part of the identity. Although I came at it incredibly haphazardly and mostly my career is kind of a series of accidents and luck and uh, no planning. You know, after college, I, with my girlfriend at the time, you may remember Amy Sandeman, she and I went down to Chile because we both wanted to live abroad. And uh, I wanted to live in the Eastern European country and she wanted to live in the Spanish speaking country. So we lived in a Spanish speaking country. And to sort of show you my journalistic instincts. We picked Chile because it was safe and stable. <laughs> Turns out that <laughs> nothing was going on, but I didn't really know that I wanted to be a journalist then. I, I didn't want to be a journalist then, but I kind of fell into it. And there's a, it's a long story, but uh, I'll cut to the chase, which is that the first job that I had, which was quasi-journalistic, uh, I got fired. I was translating the biggest news stories of the day from 
uh, Spanish in Chile into English. And uh, the only hitch was that I didn't speak Spanish. I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I had told the guy who hired me truthfully that he asked me how my Spanish was and I said it was improving, which was true, but from a very, very low bar. I sort of had some French, so I thought how hard could it be to translate uh, Spanish when you speak? you know, can read a little bit of French, although my French was terrible and uh, my Spanish was worse. Three months later, he fired me, but then I got another job and I sort of stayed in journalism and never left. I always assumed that I would leave journalism. I certainly never identified myself as an investigative reporter until many years later when I finally landed at ProPublica. Even then, I sort of thought that I had kind of come in through the back door because it was after the financial crisis in 2008 and they really needed a kind of Wall Street and financial reporter and I was the guy who was available. And so, you know, eventually I realized that I had been doing accountability reporting my whole life and kind of, and that in fact, investigative reporting is a kind of bullshit branding term for something that all reporters should be doing all the time, which is essentially you know, asking why something is happening, not just reporting that it is happening and trying to get at the real truth and hold the powerful accountable and identify things that are going wrong and trying to explain them and, and right wrongs and uncover injustice. And I ended up kind of focused on that, mostly kind of on wrongdoers. It's, you don't want to be self-righteous about it and you need to really try to curb any arrogance because it's very easily easy to make a lot of mistakes in this business, but I do kind of approach it by trying to see uh, what people are doing wrong and identify that. Do I read you right that if they needed someone to do the Wall Street beat, if that's the right term, then that's what you did. But if they'd maybe put you in a different area, would you be still pursuing the values and the, the, what you were talking about, but in a different area? Like if, you'd, if they'd had you cover, I don't know, New York City? Yeah. I mean, as I say, I kind of fell into all of this very accidentally in Chile, my first job after I got fired was for an English language business newsletter. And I had not worked for the Columbia Spectator, you may recall me not working for them in college. I hadn't done any journalism then. I'd written one freelance thing on the um, on the Blue Man Group <laughs> um, when they were like a downtown indie you know, experimental art group. So I went into journalism not having done any journalism, not speaking Spanish, and literally never really knowing any business people. I had grown up in a college town, Madison, Wisconsin, and been surrounded my whole life by professionals. You know, my parents and family members were doctors, lawyers, professors, and I quite literally didn't know any people in business and certainly didn't know anything about finance. I did have these kind of ideas that vague ideas that, you know, that you had to understand the way the money, the world of money worked to understand politics. And I had sort of vaguely lefty, unformed lefty politics too. And so I thought, you know, I can understand the system from within by learning this stuff. And then I actually think that learning is a function of knowledge and interest is, I mean, sorry, interest is a function of knowledge. And as you learn more, you become more interested in it. So I eventually, a few years later, I ended up being assigned to cover biotech for Dow Jones Newswires, a wire service, financial wire service. Again, not knowing anything about healthcare or science, 
or drug development, but I threw myself into it. I'm a, you know, I can fake things um, pretty well, uh, pretty quickly and kind of um, got up to speed uh, and, and really, really liked that. Um, and that was a revelation, that beat. That was sort of what ended up both convincing me that I should be a journalist and convincing me that journalism was fundamentally very interesting and that I was actually much more suited to journalism than I was to academia, which is where I always assumed that I would end up and then realize I'm just not intellectually suited for it. So I'm hearing a pattern of, of like you kind of stumbling into things, but then doing really well at it. And I'm guessing that that's a passion. And I mean, I'm hearing integrity. Like you, you really want to make sure that you're not going to do a crappy job. Huge integrity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I mean, I definitely didn't ever want to do a crappy job. I mean, I was both sort of ambitious, but unformed ambition. I wanted to uh, very localized ambition. So I wanted to get scoops. You know, I always sort of naturally wanted to find things at first and then I'd be interested in scams. I found, I realized I was interested in scams and lies. The reason why biotech was so interesting was it was the nexus of these extraordinarily brilliant scientists who were really trying to save people's lives and charlatans who were taking advantage of the hopes and dreams and fears of sick people, you know, and so it was this extraordinary meeting of genius and con men. And I gravitated to reporting on the con men because it always seemed to me to be news that all these companies were supposed to develop drugs. The drugs were supposed to be approved by the government. They were supposed to sell and supposed to make money. And every time they didn't do that, if the drugs killed people or if they didn't get approved or didn't sell, weren't profitable, I always thought that was the newsworthy thing. So I sort of gravitated to the cheats and the liars and uh, tried to expose them, not really with any form of thinking that this was investigative journalism, but it was sort of investigative journalism, kind of backing into it. And yeah, I wanted to do it well. Um, I didn't want to be embarrassed. I wanted to beat people and I didn't want to get things wrong. And uh, I didn't put this enormous pressure on myself to sort of, you know, win a Pulitzer by 25, because I always sort of, for the first five or six years, I thought, well, I'm just, I'm just a tourist here. I'm eventually going to go back and get my PhD in something substantive. I remember uh, a conversation that you and I had where you were either, you know, you had gotten your PhD in physics, right? You have a PhD in physics, right? Or were in in grad school at the time. And you said, you know, why are you in journalism? I, you're just like writing about people doing things. I want to do things. And that hit home for me. And I felt like that journalism was a kind of just recording of the events of other people, that I wasn't, a, you know, a man in the arena to use the Teddy Roosevelt phrase. Um, You know, eventually I realized that I think journalism, I came to peace with journalism and felt like it was an honorable profession of someone doing something, something good for society. And I, and I feel like, you know, I have made a modest contribution. (laughs) At least. Yeah. And as you said, I remember saying things like that before, maybe not that particular conversation. And I look back at what I was doing then and I would reverse it. (laughs) (laughs) I, I cringed inside when I when I heard you say it. I was like, oh, "Well, uh, I hope a lot of other people feel like when they were younger, they said things that they didn't quite understand what they were saying." Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, particularly men should not be allowed in society till they're about thirty. And I certainly <laughs> felt like I, you know I was not ready for uh, 
civil company until about 30 or 31. So I said a lot of stupid shit too. <laughs> you know, I'm curious about the, the experience of writing, of how you pick your topics and how you, because you, you've hit some really big ones. And also the experience of the investigation, the writing. I presume there's a lot of teamwork. I mean, I see your name and a couple others on the bylines, but the fact-checking and, the, and I suspect there's a lot of support from editors and from publishers to take risks. I mean, the latest one, you were reporting on information that wasn't public information. And yeah. you guys had to make some really, I presume there were long conversations to what to release, what not to release, what the justification was. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of conversation. And should we skip ahead to talk about the tax stuff? Or do you want me to back up and talk about sort of the general approach of picking topics and thinking about that? Because those are sort of two big area, different areas. But I could just specifically talk about the IRS series if you want. Let's go with, with how you choose the topics and that process. Yeah. Well, there's sort of two big overly, to make two generalizations, to be overly generalizing, you can have two forms of story. One is someone tells you uh, something new and you go and report it. And then the other is you ask some big question and you try to figure out the answer to that. And kind of bubbling up from the bottom of a source coming to you with information, that's kind of, in some ways, the better way of getting something new because it's really solid, you know, it, or it can be solid because you've gotten this little scoop. Some whistleblower has approached you. Someone has given you some documents and that's a nice thing. But often my career has been the other way, which is what I think of as kind of asking big, dumb questions and trying to figure out the answers to them. And the way I approach it is that journalists are outsiders, in some ways, amateurs, and we go and look at priesthoods and look at the rituals and then say, you know, why do you do it the way that that way? Why are you doing it the way you're doing it? And I ask a lot of big, dumb questions about the unexamined assumptions in those exotic realms. And then sometimes you're finding out that those exotic realms are doing harm. And if you're exposing the harm, you can reveal something important for society. So you know, early on, you know, one of the things I was co covering a lot of was the at the housing bubble and the credit bubble that was building in the 2000s. Even earlier than that, I was, you know, looking at biotech companies and the stock market bubble of the late 1990s and did a lot of stories about that and looking at accounting and seeing a lot of a pattern of accounting scandals that ended up exploding in the, you know, the Enron WorldCom pandemic of accounting scandals. So going back the whole way, I've sort of asked these big questions and then, and yes, frequently worked with teams. Sometimes I worked alone. I often wrote, I wrote a lot of columns, so kind of analytical columns. So those were obviously alone and you were analyzing things, not expressing opinions exactly because they were news pages columns, but the distinction is kind of fuzzy in newspapers. And so you would kind of lean into having a point of view a little bit in the columns and then doing, you know, investigative work on things that, that, you know, I had no background on, but learned like accounting, you know, accounting fraud. In the early 2000s, one with a colleague, uh, Mark Merriman at the Wall Street Journal, 
Um, and then al- alone, I did two, I exposed two accounting frauds. One, a Belgian speech software company called Learn on Houseby. That blew up. That Mark and I did that, those series of stories. And then with a young uh, reporter named John Carreyrou, who uh, went on to uh, great fame. And then I uh, uh, exposed an Irish drug company's accounting fraud, uh, Ilan. And those were investigative stories, but I didn't think of myself as an investigative reporter. And then bigger stories happened where later where I was sort of saying, well, you know, it looks like Wall Street is really fragile. It's going to blow up. Um, I wrote stories about the Wall Street banks um, being, you know, I sort of predicted that they were going to fail right in 2007, right before they did in 2008. So that was kind of a, an early uh, good call of mine and got some attention. And then when I went to ProPublica, I did that series of stories with This American Life and uh, on the financial crisis. That was actually sort of looking backwards. Um, at like, what did bankers know and when did they know it? And that won the Pulitzer. I'm drawn to ask something. You're talking about scams and where people, we talked about the medical area, that people, you have brilliant people and then you have a lot of demand. And so people figure out ways to make scams. And maybe they're intentionally trying to defraud people, maybe not. But when you describe that situation, I could not help. And I wasn't prepared to think this way, but of right now with the environment, there's a lot of brilliant people coming up with, here's a great solution. And it feels like time after time, they'll come up with like hydrogen economy or carbon offsets that sounds so great. And then after a little while, it turns out, well, they, they actually exacerbated the problem or didn't solve what they were saying to do. This is possibly outside of what you've looked at, but do you, have you developed the sense for like where frauds might be? And does that set off any spider sense? Oh, I, I'm sure that that's true with green companies. You're seeing this kind of vogue with Silicon Valley. I mean, the richest man in the world right now runs an electric car company and has serially exaggerated the claims for his company um, and arguably serially violated securities laws. And uh, nothing of consequence has happened to Elon Musk, but uh, he has some real P.T. Barnum qualities to him, you know, and so people take cues from those kind of leaders. I haven't looked at green energy companies, but Silicon Valley now and our tech startup culture now is a culture of faking it until you make it. There's very, I think we have a ethical crisis in the United States, particularly in corporate America, where I just don't think that anybody adheres to. I think few people feel principled, you know, that they're required to tell the truth, that they must not do harm. You know, I think that people feel like they want to get theirs. Now, of course, that's an overgeneralization. Uh, There are a lot of decent people uh, really trying to do good for society, but the overarching ethos is a corner-cutting ethos and and an ethos of impunity. I mean, I, I think the rise of lead impunity is one of the great crises of our time. And it took me a long time to realize that I, actually my beat is elite impunity, that I am focused on a lack of accountability for the powerful as the wealthy and powerful have gotten even wealthier and even more powerful over the era that I've been working. So, you know, in when we emerged from college, wealth inequality was beginning but was not remotely in 
to the degree that it is now. And all and many of society's ills flow, I think, from uh, a lack of accountability for the small subset of oligarchs who uh, essentially are now uh, in a position to disproportionately influence the world. Almost dictating terms. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite, you know, uh, it's not uh, 12 rabbis sitting in a room or, uh, you know, that kind of conspiracy thinking. Um, and they're sometimes adversarial to each other, but but they have wildly disproportionate influence to, you know, over uh, over policies. And, uh, you know, to the point where we're almost paralyzed in, in American society to get something done. How much of what you're talking about would you say, are you talking about the individuals themselves? How much of it is looking at the system? Or is that an arbitrary distinction that doesn't mean anything? No, I think it, it, it does mean something. I think there's both a kind of loose moral uh, you know, collapse in ethical standards from individuals. And I try to call out individuals for their bad behavior when I can see it. And then there are systemic problems. And then there are I don't know if you can hear my dog. Yeah, we well, can hear the dog, but yeah, that's <laughs> all right. We have a dog in kind of yeah, real yeah. life. You know, the tax system is both a legal system that has developed over time to create practices that allow the ultra wealthy to avoid taxes, and those are perfectly legal. Then there are loopholes, which uh, they take advantage of and are aggressive about, which Sometimes are legal, sometimes are gray areas. And then there's you know tax evasion, which occasionally the ultra-wealthy engage in, but they don't really have to engage into. It's uh, overly risky and kind of stupid strategy to actually break the law because they have so little need to pay taxes as long as they adhere to certain perfectly legal practices. And that's the system that we want to expose with this series of stories on the IRS data that we have. Um, The tax data on the ultra-wealthy is, yes, this is the system we have developed and chosen, and it allows the ultra-wealthy to avoid taxation. And so, yes, I do often write on systemic issues, but people are making individual choices. A lot of these people these ultra-wealthy people have been lobbying against higher tax rates, lobbying against any tax changes that would actually affect them, lobbying against the estate tax, lobbying against one of the most notorious tax loopholes in the entire code, which is that at death, all of the capital gains that you've accrued over time for your assets get wiped out for your estate. And so you don't have to pay a capital gains as long as on any of those gains after death. That's uh, that's the greatest, you know, probably the greatest tax boon to the ultra wealthy in the tax code. When you talk about the ultra wealthy, does the one percent, does the point one percent, and then it's like the couple dozen? Are, are you talking now about the couple dozen? No, I'm talking about uh, you know they're about uh, zero. The 0.001%, about 4,000 Americans, that's whose tax returns we have. Um, you know, We obtained the tax returns on thousands of Americans more than 15 years. It's sort of the 1% of the 1% we talk about. The 1%, I think, is a, you know, a, is a bigger slice. They're making, I think, on income, maybe about $500,000 uh, or more a year or so. So, there are distorting elites of varying degrees in American society. I think the the kind of one to five percent has its own distortions that are leading to uh, 
problems in American society, and then there are the the one percent of the one percent, you know, the point zero zero one percent, which are really the kind of Forbes four hundred billionaires, and they are truly a force unto themselves, you know, almost untouchable by American political forces, American you know, legal and enforcement forces. I think they are a kind of global elite that uh, that floats above any kind of rules or strictures. You're talking about what they do with um, loopholes and lobbying. On a bigger scale, I'm not sure if they're consciously doing it. I feel like the values of American culture are being influenced as well. I think I've heard you talking about um, maybe it's in the context of wealth taxes and people say, well, we can't do that. But there's nothing that says this is a human construct. This is we've decided what we can, can't, or what we will or won't tax. It's not like it's handed down from above. Yeah. I, I feel like mainstream American culture thinks that certain things just we can't do and certain things can do. And they're just doing, they're just really good at it. But we could live by different values. I think over the last 40 or 50 years, American society has become quite calcified. And uh, we we don't really accomplish a lot politically. Political accomplishments are incremental. And the cultural and economic accomplishments are really modest compared to compared to the sort of the late 19th century, early 20th century, where um, there was an enormous amount of innovation. So I think we have reached a kind of stultified economic, intellectual, and cultural point. And uh, I've actually thought that science, scientific endeavors have been really delayed. And it's been a pet theory of mine that I haven't fully explored, not fully confident of. But I do think that the money has replaced a lot of these other values and that that our capital markets have become so dominant a force in the global economy and in the United States. And the rewards of wealth have become so outsized. We live in such a winner-take-all economy now that it has distorted incentives so to such a great degree that we have Wall Street filled with physics PhDs and biochemistry PhDs. And it is we have become so financialized and they, the rewards are so great that we've taken all these brilliant people and put them into a world of where they're just speculating to make money on paper. And I think that it's had vast um, malign effects on our values as a society and you know our progress. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I would guess that you would say your goal is to, is to make people aware of what maybe they're just taking for granted or not realizing that they, you know, holding it up for people to see. This is what we've wrought. Yeah. My goal is to write some clear sentences that describe the world accurately. And that's very hard to do. 
And I'd like to be a good writer, good enough writer to do that. I don't really think that I can change the world and I'm not really approaching the, my job that way. You know, maybe I can make incremental changes on a modest scale about uh, one or two provisions of the tax code if I can, you know, kind of influence that, you know, or our team can influence that. This is a big team that I'm working on with, with at ProPublica with the uh, IRS stories. There, there's, you know, about 10 people. And so my colleagues have made great contributions or extraordinary um, people. This is one of the biggest efforts that ProPublica has ever assembled on any one project. And they're great reporters and they're doing a great job. And, um, you know, I don't want them to get down on about anything, but, um, you know, we're if we're going to have any changes at all, they could be extremely modest. I've watched a bunch of videos of you taking call-ins from listeners or from viewers on... I'm sorry. Sorry you had to do that. <laughs> well, one of the things that hit me was that people sometimes ask you very challenging questions of uh-huh. coming from different perspectives. And a couple of times you were like, well, that's a myth. That, uh, sorry to say, but that's a myth that's been debug- uh, debunked many times. But your, your taking the questions was very uh, calm, cool, collected. And then your answers were really knowledgeable and you'd done the research. And I was... So I'm, I'm watching that thinking like, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Not that I didn't, wouldn't have expected that. But there was one thing that one person called you a hero and you smiled. And I, I think it was like, you know, we love, is it not great to be appreciated for what we put effort into? And uh, what's it like to be called a hero? Did you, do you remember that? Is it, I mean, some people see you as- <laughs> I don't even remember this, but I mean, I think that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, I don't see this as- particularly heroic. I was just talking to a group of uh, foreign journalists at Arizona State last week, and one of them kind of raised some question about how courageous I must be or how heroic I must be. And I said then, which I really did believe and believe to now, which is that it's kind of absurd for an American journalist to stand up in front of you know somebody from Sudan and somebody a journalist from Russia and a journalist from Iran and and talk about how courageous we are i mean those are the people who take real risks confront really authoritarian governments lawless states they're running physical risks to themselves and their families you know the worst thing that can happen to me is i get a very scarily worded letter from a lawyer, or I get yelled at by a high-priced PR guy. I'm not really running that much physical, you know, or psychological or economic risk. And in fact, the more I poke the super wealthy and, and the powerful, the more career glory I can win for myself. So I do not think of myself as a great hero, although I do encourage other people to say that about me as often as they can. Something that's been running through this is uh, America. I mean, what you were just saying was contrasting the situation here with there, at least for for you, but also, and maybe I'm reading into this too much because when we were undergrads, Columbia at the time, multiculturalism was very big and you went the opposite trend of you majored in American studies, which was not a major. So you had to design your own major, which by the way is in your Wikipedia page. Uh And I'm reading something of a... I think you said poking at the the powerful and exposing things. I believe that it looks to me like there's a, you have a vision for an America that's a 
a greatness that there are values that it could have and that you're not taking down so much as giving away for, I don't know how to put it, for America to, to realize its values, to rise up. I'm not sure of the right terminology, but fundamentally a positive effect on us. I think that you can't be cynical in BA investigative reporter. You have to be kind of a believer. You have to think, you know, I, I do wake up. I'm very contrarian, I'm very argumentative. I'm really pissed off all the time. I'm really outraged. But fundamentally, I do think that you can have, there's something of value to exposing wrongdoing. You can't just be cynical and think that it's, it's not worth anything at all. And so I do sort of get up and think, you know, I'm going to try to describe the world the way I see it in a truthful way. And maybe somebody somewhere will have their minds changed or something. Yeah. So I, I don't know about America realizing its greatness. I don't think of myself in those kind of grandiose, you know, that grandiose terms, but I do think that I'm not fundamentally a cynic. And I don't want to become cynical. And, I, and I'm not. I'm also very curious. So I'm contrarian and curious. I mean, the American studies thing was just like sheer laziness. I, uh, I didn't want to read all the stuff that now I wish I knew about, like European history and European literature and all the, the other stuff that um, I avoided by doing, designing my own American studies major. That's all the stuff I'm interested in today. So uh, that was just yeah, yet another idiotic thing that I did in my uh, early 20s that I shouldn't have been allowed to do. Oh, here I thought it was uh, like a deliberate, like a... a yeah, you uh, thought that I was... Beyond your yeah, years. exactly. Writing about that. Yeah. Learning about the fundamentals of America. So that, no, it was not. It was so that I could play more frisbee. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. Oh man, that just reminded me of something you said once we were at a practice. So sorry to go off topic from investigative journalism, but so to get good at frisbee, you got to throw a lot of discs and you got to practice throwing. And we had some early beginning of the season thing where we were saying everyone should get on the lawns and throw as much as you can to get your skills better. And for example, between classes, you can go there. And you said, yeah, if you're going to class and you got 10 minutes to go, that's 20 minutes of good tossing in there. Yeah, sadly, that was my attitude then. Yeah. And good throws. Yeah. <laughs> And it modestly improved my throwing. Yeah. You mentioned curiosity. And I'm curious, I suspect you're deep into the tax stuff now. And maybe there's no, you don't see the end of it. Maybe there's more, maybe you're still pulling on thread and unraveling. But do you have, is there anything of directions that you're thinking of going in next? Well, my colleagues, Paul Keel and Jeff Ernstazen and I have uh, three stories that we're struggling to get out by the end of the year. Those will be, I hope pretty interesting and kind of really illuminating in the, about a specific sort of uh, group of people who are taking advantage of the tax code. I'm not going to say any more about it than that, but um, it does go back decades. And there are great, there's great, fascinating history here. I mean, we have been struggling over how to tax the wealthy and have the wealthy pay their fair share since at least since the Civil War. And, you know, it took about 50 or 60 years just to pass an income tax after having imposed an income tax in the Civil War and having it rescinded. And then finally, there was a constitutional amendment of it about it. And then the wealthy have been avoiding it ever since. And so there's this great push and pull. I think it's an amazing story. And I, and I think I'll stick with it in some fashion, at least through next year, if not longer. And 
I want to go back to what I asked before. And you said it wasn't really your thing, but uh, in your field, I presume you know other peers. Is environment something that people are looking to investigate in terms of, um, I just see a lot. Of, I mean, you, you went to Silicon Valley, but I see a lot of um, misrepresentation of like net zero. I mean, when I hear net zero, I hear creative accounting. I think there's like lots of ways that you can not do something and then claim that you are. Oh, yeah. And do, are people looking into that? Do, do you know of anything? Or Well, yeah. I mean, we have a very good environmental reporting team. And uh, one of our reporters, Lisa Song, has done a series of stories about how carbon offsets are uh, BS. Yeah, the pro- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the ProPublic article on carbon offsets is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. So she did a great job there. And then we have another reporter, Abram Lusgarden, um, who's done some great stuff uh, about uh, the Colorado River uh, being depleted and about he just recently did a big story about how how human migration patterns are going to change because of climate change and how disastrous the uh, you know, refugee crises will be and how that will unfold. So we have looked at that. You know, we haven't done the kind of reporting on Silicon Valley startups that I think is warranted. I'm, uh, I haven't followed that as closely as, <laughs> as I, maybe I should have, but there are these, you know, these burgeoning areas. Crypto is one and, green energies, another, with all of these kind of faddish ideas, charlatans are attracted to them. So I'm sure that there are many, plenty of liars and cheaters. And not only are there just liars and cheaters, but, and real, you know, deep fraudsters, but all of the companies are under a huge amount of pressure to creatively account for their, for their progress. And uh, so there's probably like endemic kind of lying going on that everybody thinks is okay because everyone else is doing it. I just assume that that's true. That was true in the uh, dot-com bubble. It's true in biotech all the time. It's true with fast-growing companies of all sorts. So I'm sure that's true with green tech. I just don't, I'm not really following it closely enough to have specifics. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it before this conversation right here, right now, but if anyone's interested, I'd love to help with that because it's, yeah, you, you put it pretty well, that pattern of the, infl- the, the temptation that is going to be endemic to the field in this, in this state, high demand, lots of lack of awareness yeah, and technical issues. It could be, maybe it'll work that opens it up for charlatans. Oh, there was a big article in the New Yorker last week about um, the, I mean, organic stuff gains a premium. And so some, some guy just hugely buying non-organic stuff, labeling this organic and making a big profit. Yes, I wanted to read that. I forgot to. Uh, I put that down and didn't read it. And that, that looks like a really good article. Yeah, it's fascinating and tragic. Uh, there was just a technical issue and it got cut off. So suddenly, and Jesse and I, just before I started hitting record, we're like, what were you just saying? And so, sorry to the listeners, <laughs> but we're going to switch to uh, <laughs> before wrapping up. Jesse, do you have memories from college of either being teammates together or? Well, didn't we, didn't we stay at one of your family uh, place in North Carolina. Do I have this right? Are we reconstructing this? Pretty close. Yeah. In spring break, we drove to, we would stay in Florida and uh, my mom lived in South Carolina. And I think we had a tournament a couple of years at, in Columbia, South Carolina, and then went to yeah. stay at my parents' place at my mom and stepfather's house. Yeah. I think I fell in love uh, with one of the uh, women on the Columbia Ultimate Team at that 
that place. That has, that place has a fond, uh, you know, carries a fond memory. I will pass it on to my mom. She now lives northwest uh-huh. of New York City. As on account of my sister lives in Queens, and the grandchildren tend to get grandparents to show up a lot. <laughs> nice. And yeah, I distinctly remember they said uh, there are certain ground rules. So I hope the love was uh, not consummated there because <laughs> broken some <laughs> rules. No comment. Uh, and um, yeah, I hope that uh, we didn't really talk too much about the environment, although there was a lot about one of my mentors, Frances Hesselbein, who's been on the show. One of her definitions of leaders is to show people what is unseen, but is right there to see. And it, I heard you say that a couple of times of your, of your revealing things that is there and you make it seen if I read you right. And so, yeah, I think that's a, a good way of saying, uh, I think Orwell said that it takes a great deal of effort, I'm paraphrasing, to uh, just see, accurately see what's right in front of your face. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's a good place to close. So Jesse Eisinger, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.